Welcome to the Brothers-in-Law Podcast News Updates. I'm your host, Adrian Guess. If this is your first time joining me, thank you for selecting me as one of your news sources. If you're returning, thank you for your commitment to the show. For those of you who are new, the purpose of this show is to break down major news stories and bring attention to issues affecting our country. So let's get started. All right, listeners, so we're going to start off with our first segment here where I wanted to, you know, highlight a story that's very sad, but wanted to offer some condolences to the victims and hope for healing um, for peace uh, for the community. And this is the Chiefs parade shooting that happened during the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl rally, where authorities have charged two juveniles with crimes connected to the mass shooting. So the city is grappling with recovery in the aftermath of the violence and just wanted to offer condolences and prayers, good vibes, positivity, as I said, to the victims and the community for hope and healing and peace because um, mass shootings, violence, gun violence, these things are things that we see a lot in America um, from schools to raids to malls, the grocery stores, different things. So definitely hearts and prayers to those who have been affected in this event. Now onto a, a different story here. And this has taken us to Florida where we were, where we're seeing governor Ron DeSantis is emphasizing that Florida does not ban books but instead empowers parents to object to learning materials if they feel it's inappropriate for a certain age group. Quote, over the past year, parents have used their rights to object to pornographic and sexually explicit material they found in school libraries. We also know that some people have abused this process in an effort to score cheap political points. This is coming from Governor DeSantis. Another quote from Governor DeSantis I am calling on the legislature to make necessary adjustments so that we can prevent abuses in the objection process and ensure that districts aren't overwhelmed by frivolous challenges. You know, I don't completely buy this from uh, Governor DeSantis. You know, I'm I'm not the I will admit, you know, I'm, I'm always very transparent whenever, you know, I'm talking about news. Um, I'm not you know, a fan of Governor DeSantis, uh, you know, one of the things that I didn't like about uh, his administration is that they didn't want to do the AP African-American studies. And we also uh, saw, you know, these these articles coming out about these book bans that parents were coming in. And, you know, obviously pornographic, sexually explicit material that doesn't have a place, you know, for certain age ranges um, but to a certain degree, that might raise the question of when do we start really teaching sexual education in our schools and making sure that we can start to normalize that so kids understand what's going on? Um, the other thing is, if we are going to allow parents to ban books, 
there might need to be some sort of independent review board to investigate their claims before we just go banning books because some books might get banned because, you know, parents don't want their children to feel guilty about slavery and things of that nature. So we, we don't want to open it up to a slippery slope where we see the truth being banned, but we do want to make sure that there's a, you know, open space for parents to be able to have a reasonable, in, you know, reasonable dialogue with their school systems. I, I, I'm fully supportive of parents being involved in schools. I think parents should be involved in schools at a high level. Um, I, I worked around schools. And one of the things I saw is that parents weren't involved enough in schools. But I also saw where schools who were successful, they had high parental involvement. So I know that there is a correlation between student success, school success, and parental involvement. I think we need to tailor the parental involvement and make sure that parents aren't distracting from the curriculum that students should be getting, because quite frankly, not every parent is an expert on the education that their child should be getting. And I'm not saying that that's saying that Parents shouldn't, you know, be in charge of teaching their kids, but every parent's not an educator where they can sit down and teach a child how to do calculus or teach a child economics. That's what I'm talking about. So whenever we're talking about banning books, we need to make sure that this is done in a way that doesn't infringe upon the child or any children's uh, ability to learn. So that, that's all I'll say on that. And, you know, we'll kind of keep the ball rolling here. On to uh, another story. And this is a very interesting story that I saw. You know, we, we all know that there is a huge, huge wealth disparity in America, um, particularly when you're talking about it in a racial lens. But this is uh, coming, this report here is coming from the New York Federal Reserve Bank, where reports that the real net worth of white individuals outgrew that of black and Hispanic individuals by 30 percentage points and nine percentage points, respectively, from the first quarter of 2019 through the second quarter of 2023. A separate Fed survey shows that as of 2022, about 65.6% of white households had investments in stocks compared with 28.3% for Hispanic households and 39.2% for black households. Let me hit you with another statistic here. More than 50% of black financial wealth is invested in pensions. Less than 20% of black wealth is stored in private businesses, corporate equities, and mutual funds. In contrast, you've got 30% of financial wealth invested in pensions for white families with about 50% invested in businesses, equities, and mutual funds. So when we talk about you know, closing the wealth gap in America, it's a complicated topic because there, there's so many compounding factors on closing this wealth gap. I mean, this this from the New York Fed is talking about, you know, uh net, you know, real net worth, talking about, you know, how household white households have more in stocks, mutual funds, equity, you know, I've been preaching this sort of message to a lot of my friends here at law school about the, the way that minority communities can get towards more social justice is through economic justice, because we, we see here 
that, you know, uh, another study, this is, you know, Forbes reported on this, where black Americans are in 30 percent less than white Americans. The median black household has a net worth of about twenty four thousand compared to white households who have about a median net worth of one hundred eighty eight thousand, about an eighth more or eight times more rather than black households. It, it, it's those sorts of things that when we talk about solving the wealth gap, it, you know, it's not just giving people a, a reparations check. I mean, there's a lot of different things that have to come into play here that are ongoing long term because it even, you know, you even talk about, you know, wages here that are being different. Um, you talk about home ownership that's being different. There's so many different things that we've got to address here if we are going to close the racial wealth gap, whether it's with blacks, Hispanics, it doesn't matter, Native Americans. There is a lot of disparity here. Um, when you talk about the businesses, you know, that's a huge aspect, being able to invest in business, because when you're investing in business, you're creating ownership, you're getting equity, you're getting something that if it survives will be passed down generation generation, you're getting something that it, it, you can use for tax write-offs. There's a lot of different things that you can get whenever you're able to invest in business and one of the things that's a hindrance to investing in business is having access to capital. This here, another statistic showing that black entrepreneurs on average launch their businesses with $35,000 in startup capital and loans versus an average of $107,000 for white entrepreneurs. So that's huge. That's almost three times the, the amount of money that is given to white entrepreneurs versus black entrepreneurs. Now, these are, you know, obviously people can say, well, facts can be inflated. Facts are from, but I'm just giving you the statistics here. Um, you can take them how you feel about them. But if you look in the market, you can see that this is true. Because when you look at how many black businesses there are, when you look at the failure that black businesses suffered during the pandemic versus white businesses, in any other minority business, you, you can begin to paint these pictures, connect the dots and see that this is why the wealth gap continues to widen in our country, because you have minority groups who aren't able to take advantage in the economic opportunities of a prosperous nation. I mean, we have a great stock market. But if you don't have the money to invest in it, if you don't have the knowledge, if you don't have the time, if you don't have the resources, there's so many different factors that's not just, well, black people or Hispanic people or Native American people or Asian. Like, it's not something where they just need to just start, you know, getting a, a Robin Hood or an E-Trade account and just start investing. That that's not the answer because there's a lack of financial literacy, there's a lack of know-how. Um, there's a lot of different jargon that's in the stock market. So just saying, oh, let's just go and give money to invest, that's not going to solve it. Even with saying, well, let's just increase um, the, uh, the, the loans and the capital for entrepreneurs, that's not always going to be the answer either because everybody can't have a business. Some people just need to start a business. Other people might need to build skills. Some people might need credit. There's so many different things that we need to be tackling when it comes to solving this wealth gap. I hope that we wake up and we begin to do it. I'm thankful that a lot of younger people are rising up and really leading the charge for this. I just hope that we have policy that will 
come out and help to reverse a lot of these things that are happening that it's unfortunately widening the wage gap but let me uh digress let's go to uh, uh you know let's let me get off of this story i'm going to go to another story and you know still going to be heated a little bit because you know when you talk about the news, I, I feel like it's got to be a little bit of passion into it because we need to use this as a tool to inspire people to, when you hear something, investigate it, learn about it, see what you can do to solve it. It's, I think that that's what, that's what news should be about. All right. So on to our next story here. This is about mental health for students. I will definitely let you know. I like, prioritizing mental health i believe mental health should be prioritized i believe if you don't prioritize mental health you leave things uh uh, uh you, you you just leave so much open to chance because people don't need to be sitting on things festering on things we need to be dealing with stuff particularly when it comes to our children now this is a, a story uh we're just talking about schools across the country responding to youth mental health crisis that has been accelerated by the pandemic. Many are confronting what has been called a thorny legal, ethical, and practical challenge in getting parents on board with therapy and mental health treatment for children. The issue has been politicized with some states looking for streamlining access as conservative politicians elsewhere propose further restrictions, accusing schools of trying to indoctrinate students and cut out parents. Schools have invested pandemic relief money in hiring more mental health specialists, as well as telehealth and online counseling to reach as many students as possible. The question of when young people can consent to mental health is getting increasing attention from policymakers. There's also a huge obstacle outside of law, which comes to financing therapy, because therapy is rarely free and paying for it requires submitting claims to insurance or requires some parental support. So, I, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I would, I would think that this would be an easy, you know, no brainer type of situation. A child who needs therapy should be able to have access to therapy. The therapy should be free for students. You know, it's like, I get yeah, therapy has to be paid by somebody because somebody's got to do it and insurance, blah, blah, whatever. But I think that there should be, you know, special programs, whether it be funding through the federal government or, or state department of education, where there are mental health workers and therapists and counselors in schools where students can go receive free professional care, professional help to get the things that they need. I just be upfront, straight up with you with that. I think that that should just be a thing. I think if we do that, that helps us to normalize mental health. We, if, if we provide access to youth, you know, we can facilitate the process of normalizing mental health. So whenever you go and speak to a therapist, people don't say, well, that's crazy. What's going on with you? What's, are you all right? No. Going and speaking to a therapist, talking to someone about your mental health, that should just be normal. <laughs> that should just be a thing that we do in America everywhere if, if you've got if you're stressed if you're depressed going and speaking to somebody that should just be something that you just do i mean we do it so much with our family and friends but to do it with the professional who can give you tools who can guide you give you direction help you to maybe uncover where this is coming from so that you can further understand and evaluate it for yourself 
Like, we should be normalizing mental health. Now, I don't get me wrong, just like we're talking about parents and book bans, parents have a right to be involved in their children's lives, involved in making sure that what's going on with their kids, they're on board with. I totally understand that. But just like I said, how some parents can't teach calculus, some parents might not understand the mental health needs of their children. And that's no slight against a parent. That's just saying that mental health is complicated. That's why you have people who go to school who get, you know, masters and PhDs on this. There, it's a complicated topic. That's why there's research papers and there's conventions where people go and present research. And there's so much that goes into the human psyche and what we need and what we when 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 things are 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 missing, how it affects us. There's a lot that goes into it. And when you talk about the pandemic and what kids went through who were so used to playing with their friends, so used to seeing their favorite teacher, so used to coming and getting a free lunch, but now they had to deal with the pandemic and not having this and not having that and that separation and the anxiety. And now we're back to normal, I guess you could say, but still that, that, that time that they went through, um, that uncovered a lot of damage and it furthered the damage that was already there. So we, we don't need to provide more obstacles towards our children getting mental health. As I said, we need to be prioritizing it. We need to be making sure that children have free access to it. Parents, sure, you can have a conversation. You can make sure that, you know, your therapist is, you know, not, you know, you know, give telling your child, you know, information that, you know, it might be contradictory. Maybe, maybe we need to have, I, I get the whole idea of client, you know, uh, privilege and confidentiality, but maybe with kids, you know, you can waive a little bit of that confidentiality with parents where parents are able to get a transcript of the therapy session uh, and make sure that they can speak to the therapist. And if they object to something, it's like, Hey, this is something that, you know, I feel uncomfortable with you talking to my child about. Um, is it something that, you know, either you can let me know more about so that I can understand? I mean, there's there's so many different ways that we can do this to where parents are involved and have access to make decisions. But I still think that people who understand mental health in a deep way um, should be involved in the process and make sure that kids get the need, you know, get the, the, the access that they need. So, you know, say what you want to, but like I said, therapy for kids should be free and they should have access to it in schools. So here's, here's another story here. And this is about, um, you know, this is kind of an interesting story. You know, I thought it was interesting in the sense that, we as you know minorities face all kinds of stuff and oftentimes it's it's hard to prove what we're going through because maybe there's other economic reasons and and, and this is a story that made me think of that it's like maybe there's some other economic reasons that makes it where it's not so unjust or it could just be that some people are bad actors i don't know but let's talk about this story so According to the L.A. Times, a complaint was filed against post-consumer brands on Tuesday that claims that Walmart and Post were stocking Snoop cereal in the back 
or rather they had seized the stock Snoop cereal after they were being introduced to great success nationwide in July. I think a lot of y'all probably have been seeing this out there where Snoop and Master P were talking about how after they had launched their cereal, sales were good, reviews were great, but people started walking, people started going around the different Walmarts and couldn't find cereal stock. They couldn't find it on any shelves. And there were accusations about Walmart, you know, making it harder to find the product by concealing the cereal in stock rooms, putting them in clearance or baby aisles, and even boosting the box's price to more than $10, which is ridiculous. The lawsuit claims Post initially wanted to purchase the cereal rights, but the artist turned them down, stating that selling the brand would destroy the whole purpose of leaving the company to their families as a legacy. A Walmart, spokes, a Walmart spokesperson told the Times, quote, many factors affect the sales of any given product, including consumer demand, seasonality, and price, to name a few. So, like I said in the beginning of introducing this story, I, you know, it, it, it could be that Walmart and Post aren't bad actors. They are looking at consumer demand, looking at the pricing and figuring out that maybe customers want other brands of cereal and not Snoop brands. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, you'd have to do an analysis. You'd have to see the data. We don't know. Only thing we know is that there's a complaint that's been filed. Um, you know, the complaint has reviews of the cereal. The complaint has pictures of the cereal in boxes back in stock rooms and Walmarts. Uh, the complaint is, you know, eight different counts where the allegations are from collusion and conspiracy to fraud, breach of contract, breach of fiduciary duty, which basically a fiduciary duty is just saying that the two parties, you know, uh, Brutus Foods, which is Master P and Snoop's Foods and Post, you know, they were in a agreement. So they became partners. And because they were partners, that created a fiduciary responsibility on Post and on Brutus to act in each other's best interests. That's basically what the breach of fiduciary duty is, and even a breach of good faith and fair dealings. And that, you know, good faith and fair dealings is just, you know, a contract, you know, implied warranty almost or implied contract or provision in a contract where the two parties who are signing the, the contract they have an obligation to act, you know, in good faith with each other, to be equitable in their dealings with each other, to make sure that, you know, if I'm doing something, I'm thinking about your interests. I'm I'm trying to show that whatever I'm doing is not going against you, is not hurt hurting you or harming you. I'm acting in good faith. I'm fairly dealing with you. That's you know, kind of what those mean. So it's a very extensive complaint. It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Like I said, you 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 you've got eight counts of all of these things. You know, each of these counts have different factors that must um, be pled. So the plaintiff has to plead and improve all of these certain things to you know show that there is you know collusion and conspiracy. The defendant can rebut these with different uh, defenses and such. So there's going to be an interesting case to go and kind of see how this comes out. And like I said, the, the economic factors are, are what I feel like Walmart and Post are going to be leaning on, just saying that, 
you know, customer demand, uh, seasonality, price. I mean, I just feel like that there's a lot of economic factors that they're going to be leaning on. So I'm intrigued to see where this case goes. Um, I I hope that if there is some fraud, breach, and all that kind of stuff, Walmart and Post are held accountable because this is something where it sets the tone, it sets the stage where it's like if you're a minority uh, a business owner and you're trying to have a product and you make a contract, people can't go back on that contract just because you're outpacing the other people. Uh, I, no matter if you're Snoop Master P or somebody else, if you have a minority product, someone makes a contract with you, they should, you know, they should be held to that contract. They should be held to the agreement that they established with you to help sell your product. It shouldn't be that they get to go back on that and there's no repercussions for that. So I'm interested to see how this goes. Again, everything's allegations. So we're not saying that Walmart Post did this yet because everything is allegations right now. So, hey, maybe we'll do another update on that. So before we go to our first break, you know, this was an interesting story. Uh, another legal uh, issue where former U.S. Rep. George Santos uh, is alleged in a lawsuit that he filed Saturday that late night host Jimmy Kimmel deceived him into making videos on the Cameo app that were used to ridicule the politician. Kimmel misrepresented himself to induce Santos to create personalized videos capturing on and ridiculing his personality, the lawsuit alleges. You know, it's, I don't know, it's interesting in the sense that, you know, people are always out here creating fake identities and posing as people and getting people to do weird stuff or do whatever. So, you know, be careful. You may get sued. Uh, then the, the complaint is talking about copyright law and different things like that. So, you know, be careful of these fake identities, fake profiles. It's an interesting story here. Um, I think George Santos already has a bunch of legal issues that he's going through already. So this is another add to the pile. So listeners going to give you a break here. Enjoy the music and we'll be right back. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our second segment here. And I wanted to start off with, you know, you know a little bit of a presidential race update, you know, is kind of how I'm you know, calling it. You know, I, I understand that this year, you know, 2024, we're in the year of a presidential election. I'm not going to bog down the show too much with talking about the presidential race, but it occurred to me that, you know, the presidential race is a really big deal. You know, uh, it's something that is going to, you know, set the stage for the next four years for where the executive branch is headed. So I thought we probably should talk about it a little bit, at least. And I'm going to hit like a couple different things about it. I'm not going to go through all the different primaries and caucuses and pollings and things like that but there's a couple things i wanted to hit here and this is from a monmouth poll where they're saying in a biden trump rematch 
just over four in 10 registered voters say that they will either definitely, which is about 30 percent or probably 14 percent, vote for the Democratic incumbent. And in a separate question, a similar number, 30 percent, that they'll definitely vote for a Republican. 16 percent said they'll probably vote for Republicans. I mean, you got pretty low numbers. Um, you got nearly half of the electorate who thinks that either it's likely, which is about 20 percent or somewhat likely, which is about 20 percent, that Biden will be replaced as a Democratic nominee. By comparison, you've got 10 and 22 percent of people thinking that Trump will be replaced as a Republican nominee. Last little number here, among American voters, just 39.1 percent give Biden a favorable rating and 40.2 percent give Trump's a favorable rating. All in all, people, you know, you can kind of see numbers are low. <laughs> uh, and, and that's no kick against President Biden. I think that some of the things that the administration has done has been great. You know, the infrastructure, COVID, the, they're working with Russia and Ukraine, they're, they're the border. I mean, there's a lot of things that they're doing. There's a lot of things that they're not doing as well. But I, I get it. You know, I'm not the biggest fan of uh, Biden-Harris, you know, 2024. Um, but, you know, in 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 the face of a potential, you know, Trump do over, you know, this is the Brothers in Law podcast and we're not, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're a nonprofit, so we're not here to tell you who to vote for, who you can't vote for or anything. This show is just about delivering the news, talking to you, you know, being straight with you. And during President Trump's four years, there is a lot of stuff that happened. Um, we're living in the aftermath of it. So that's all I'm talking about is just, you know, you can you we can give him a redo. But I think based off of a lot of the things that happened in his first term, I don't know. I, I'm 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 not too supportive of 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 a Trump do-over, um, but you know, like I said, in comparison to what we do have, I you know, we'll see. I, I will definitely be one of these, uh, definitely people uh, for for voting because I definitely want to make sure to get that uh, get that out there. But you know, we'll see how we you know, we still got some time, voters, to kind of see how things go. Uh, make sure you get out and vote. Don't don't be even though nobody likes President Biden, nobody likes Trump or rather a majority of Americans don't. Um, don't let that stop you from voting. Um, voting is a powerful tool in our democracy. It's the way you voice your opinion, voice your concerns. It's the way we can have some change. Um, and voting matters. I mean, aside from the presidential race, you know, every two years, House of Representatives. Um, I don't know about your state legislatures, but I'm sure there's a bunch of you know elections happening in there. I'm sure there's some 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 county and citywide elections that are happening as well. So, you know, even though things don't seem as 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 good because we don't like the candidates, don't sleep on this election, uh, everybody. Make sure you get out there and vote. Make sure you know what's going on because. Every race matters, no matter who's running, because if someone's running for a public office, that public office likely affects something that touches your life. So you should have a say in who's in that office. So 
That's all I'm going to say on that one. Now, our next story here is an interesting one. It's about protecting data. Now, you know, I'm not a big data guy or anything. I'm, you know, I'm a millennial, but I don't, you know, claim to be super techie. But I was like, this is a kind of a good story because it ties in abortion, which is something that, you know, people vote based on. And I know it's election year. So I was like, let's talk a little bit about this. So Senator Wyden is calling on federal regulators to scrutinize a location data broker amid its bankruptcy proceedings, saying he's concerned about its ownership of data showing people visiting sensitive places such as reproductive health clinics. Concern about the location data of people going to abortion clinics has grown since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. Reproductive rights activists have warned that location data could be used by police or prosecutors in states with anti-abortion laws. You know, say what you want to about abortion. Like, I, I get it. You know, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But, you know, right to privacy is important. I, I think people have a, a right to freedom of movement, uh, you know, assuming they're not a, uh, wanted for any crimes or suspect for anything or whatever the case might be and, and something, you know, nefarious. I think people have a right to privacy. Uh, like if someone's going to the grocery store, if someone's going to the gym, if someone's going to work, um, I don't think most people want their movements monitored to the level to where your location data can be sold off to someone and you may get letters from protesters or you may be prosecuted in these states that are passing laws that allow prosecution to be had if you're, you know, helping to facilitate an abortion. Um, so that's that's one thing, right to privacy, I do think is 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 important. Um, the, the other part here, the, the abortion, you know, abortion is a tough situation, but we should not politicize it. It just shouldn't be a thing to where it's like, uh, you know, in some states you have it, some states you don't, regardless of how you feel about abortion, which I know it's, it's not a very popular thing. A lot of people don't like it. You know, people People who get, or rather, women who get abortions have various reasons why. Um, whether it be maybe they're not financially ready to have a child. Maybe they didn't want to have a child yet. Maybe it was sexual assault. I mean, there's so many different reasons. And I, I, I what, what I think is if we're going to do anything around this topic of policing abortion or doing some sort of policy take to affect abortions. I think the real thing should be addressing these root causes of abortion rather than trying to criminalize or demonize or outlaw abortion. Um, what we should be doing is, you know, if, if someone says, Hey, I I'm not financially capable of having this child. Well, let's create policies that make it easier to raise children or create a tax incentive that if you have your child, you get this tax rebate or tax refund at the end of term. You know, have a better foster care system so that way if a mom is giving up her child, they don't feel like their child is going to get lost to the system. 
sexual assault, address those issues. Like I, I, I said, I think that what we've done in our country is just, you know, say we're moving forward with protecting life, but not actually taking policy steps to make it to where our country actually prioritizes life. Because if we did, we wouldn't just outlaw abortion because that that's not stopping anything. So, you know, I know this article is not really all about abortion. It's more about protection of people's data. But I think you, you have to address the elephant in the room. You got to address the, you know, the issue at hand, which is abortion. And the fact that the reason why Senator Wyden is calling for the protection is so people don't get reported to the police or get prosecuted or something. Um, so again, don't, again, I, I just don't think that we should be you know, attacking this, uh, this abortion debate in this way. Uh, it's a totally different way of doing it. And because we are attacking, uh, attacking abortion in this way, by just outlawing it and banning it, then we have to worry about protecting people's data who are seeking abortion services. So it's just, I don't know. I, I hope we can get to a better state uh, uh, of being on this issue here. Now, another story I saw is about local news and it's about the dwindling, the, the, the lack of local news, where it says the loss of local newspapers accelerated in 2023 to an average of 2.5 per week leaving more than 200 counties as news deserts and meaning that more than half of all U.S. counties now have limited access to reliable news. And this is local news that we're talking about here. There are 204 counties with no local news outlets. Of the 3,143 counties in the U.S., more than half or 1,766 have either no local news source or only one remaining outlet, typically a, no, a local newspaper. And, you know, some people are like, well, we got CNN, we got MSNBC, we got Fox, we've got AP, BBC, and all these other um, acronyms and such. But local news is closest to home. You know, local news matters a lot because it's, in my mind, when I think about the cost of local news, it's lower than national news, lower than regional news, obviously. So you're not you're not like local news. Obviously, it's it's got its own agenda. I mean, I'm sure every news station's got some sort of agenda, but because it's not so driven on profit and it's not so bound by ratings, it's a little bit removed from all of the bias that we have. It's a little bit more of a holistic and complete picture of the news stories. At least that's what I like to think we can have if we have stronger local news sources, um, because we can use those sources to talk about things that are going on in our communities. And we can talk about projects and ventures and things that we need to come together on. And it doesn't always have to be the sensational news, this, the, the killings and the deaths and the shootings. and Because that's what you see when you have national news. When that's all you're getting, you're getting some of the, 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 the worst stories from around the country condensed into this platform for you. 
Because whenever I have to sit and prepare my script of the news I'm going to cover, and I'm going from ABC to CBS to CNN to AP to BBC to whatever, I get all these depressing stories of here's the shooting, here's this death, here's this person who's been arrested, this person who beat this person. And I'm like, wow, why can't we have some news stories that that that, that stir passion in people news stories that stir interest to want to learn um, news stories that spur the desire to come together for something. I, I mean, maybe I'm just being too, too, I don't know, too hopeful, too ideological. I, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, uh, I'm too old fashioned thinking that we could have this, you know, this sort of news cycle to where it's like, I hear a story, I'm able to learn, I'm able to be engaged, I'm able to be informed. Yeah, you can have all the other stuff too, but we, we got to have some news where people are able to learn and not be stuck in a news desert. I mean, it's just like these food deserts where you've got nothing but bad stuff around you to eat. Well, same thing with news deserts. You you got nothing to to ingest so that you can understand what's going on around you in a way that's the least biased as possible. Um, you know, I hope we can, can, can bounce back from this. I hope we can have more news outlets, more, more stations, you know, teach people how to use the news. Like I was having a conversation with a friend about that. And I was like, you know, some people are so ingrained to one source if they don't fact check things, they don't make sure to see like, well, let me see how someone else writes about this story, because maybe from a different angle, it sounds a little different or it looks a little different, appears a little bit different. We have to learn to do that when we see a news story. It's like, OK, I, I can I can accept that. I can process that. Maybe that's believable. Let me see somebody else talk about the same thing. Let me see how it's written. Let me. Let me start to research and dive off in this to fact check things to see what's going on, to understand the biases from the editors of these articles. You know, it, it takes a little bit of effort, takes a little bit of work, but that's why it's important that we have these news sources from local news, regional news, national news, so we can stay informed, stay engaged, stay connected. All right, so we're going to go to another story here, listeners. This was out of New York. Uh, New York Mayor, Mayor Eric Adams, has done a U-turn on plans to convert an abandoned luxury apartment complex into a shelter for illegal migrants after the community in Harlem opposed the proposal. Quote, no, I don't agree with it turning into a sanctuary for asylum seekers, knowing we have people right here that need the space, says Tiffany Fulton, executive director of Silent Voices United, a local nonprofit that helps underserved communities. But the mayor said that illegal migrants wouldn't be placed inside the building and that it would instead be used to house local homeless New Yorkers. Harlem resident Regina Smith told CBS the neighborhood felt disrespected and that there are already too many homeless shelters in the community. Many are wanting the building to be used as affordable housing. Wow. You know, and that's a lot to unpack there. It's like, you know, the mayor trying to do something for illegal migrants, illegal migrants, 
then trying to do something for the local homeless and still kind of losing on both fronts uh, because a lot of the community members want affordable housing. You know, this is about addressing poverty issues and helping those who are low income. You know, people who are struggling need assistance. Um, and whenever you have politicians who will, will, will come into a community, see people struggling, but decide to help some other, you know, other group of people instead of the struggling, you know, group of community members, it's quite natural that the community members would be like, hey, we're hungry. We don't have a decent wage. We can't, we can barely pay our bills. You know, we, we, we can barely afford to send our kids to college. It's, it's pretty normal for them to say, hey, Mayor Adams, what about us? Um, so I get it, you know, addressing the needs of the low income. On top of that, you, you got the homeless issue. You, you can't ignore that. I mean, and that's the problem that we've had so much in our major cities where we've ignored the homeless population, ignored the various needs of that, that that's required to integrate them into society. That's like when I lived in Los Angeles, so many homeless people, so many people living on the streets, so many people in poverty with nothing. And we are ignoring them because, you know, maybe some people like Regina and they're saying, hey, it's too many homeless shelters in the community. We don't need any more. I don't want that. Uh, in L.A., people don't want it because it brings in crime. It you know reduces the property values. Like I get it. But we can't ignore our homeless population. That's thousands of people that could be working, paying taxes, um, not taking away from the system. I mean, they're, they're, I believe that our country is strongest when we are together, when everyone is working at their best, everyone's performing at their best. That's how I think our country should be. And that's how I think we are that's how we have to operate if we are to be at our, our at, the, at the peak at our top as a country we have to get to where everyone is productive citizen integrated into our society so we can't ignore the homeless population additionally that third layer we've got the asylum seekers we've got the you know illegal migrants those who are fleeing you know trying to get away escaping horrible living conditions in their home country and just you know, want an opportunity to live. Now, I'm not saying that we need to have open borders and open the floodgates and just let every and anybody come in because there's a process where people have been working to become American citizens. So I understand that. I totally understand that. What I would suggest, and I think this is uh, an opinion that's out there already is that we've got to have the international efforts to resolve the issues in the places where people are coming from. And I, that's a deep, complex, complicated topic that we could do episodes on, write reports on, all kinds of stuff, because some countries are are struggling where they don't have, you know, stable democracies. They don't have stable economies. There might be crime, there might be corruption, there might be war, um, a lot of different things. And to say that, all right, you know, 
asylum seekers, you got to stay and live through that. I don't know. It's hard. It's, it's, it's really hard. That's like, that, that's like whenever we have people here in America who are just asking for uplift out of poverty, asking for uplift out of the, you know, the slums and the ghettos and the things that nature trying to get out of section eight housing and have something that they can, you know, own and pass down to their kids and things like that. You know, some of the same stories I feel like, you know, we we can't, you know, allow cities to just handle this because it puts a strain on the local government. And it causes this tension that you see in the community where you've got community members who saying, hey, I don't want asylum seekers. Hey, I don't want homeless shelters. We need affordable housing. Policies are complicated. It's, you know, one policy bleeds into another, leads into another, feeds into another. It's complicated process when you're dealing with policy because it's uh, it's a more holistic approach. So I don't know how this story is going to end. Um, hopefully they get more affordable housing because they need that. Hopefully they get a better handle on the homeless community. Hopefully they're able to do something for asylum seekers. I mean, so much hope, so much stuff to do. Ah, but hey, we're not going to end on this note right here. We're going to take one more break. When I come back, we're going to get into our final message. A bit of good news, happy, positive ending, something that will get you going. So that way, as you, you leave, you, you tune into something else. You can be ready. You can be refreshed. You can be motivated. So make sure you stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's get into it and wrap up with our final message. The you know listeners who are new to the show, the purpose of the final message is to make sure that when we wrap up the show, you get a bit of good news. Because I understand sometimes these stories can come off a little extra. You know, a call to action here or there, something dramatic. But I always like to end on a positive note. Because I, I, like I said, I think news is a way to stay connected. It's a way to be engaged. And you do that through learning that might sometimes be rough. But you also do it through some learning that's positive and gives you hope and shows you that if I, if I try, I, I, could, I think I could do it too. So this is about Miss Patrice Chappelle who is working with her 12-year-old son on a skincare company. Patrice and her son, Baron, or, or Byron. No, Braun, Braun, there we go. Patrice and her son, Braun, are co-founders of Melon Brand Skin, a skincare brand designed specifically for melanated skin of all ages. Patrice says that the idea was inspired by the difficulties she experienced trying to find skincare products for her son when the traditional bar soap, water, and lotion combination stopped working. You know, the reason why she's doing this is that she's wanting to create generational wealth 
the the title of this article says playground to boardroom the mom is creating generational wealth for her 12 year old ceo you know whenever i think about black history month and celebrating black history month we 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 teach children about the cultural heritage of the black diaspora but in doing that educating and that teaching we also need to teach them how to advance the cultural heritage of the black diaspora because that's what you know patrice is doing here she's teaching her son ron how to advance you know our community as black people by teaching him some skills teaching him something that's going to benefit him long after patrice is gone something that's going to help end the cycle of poverty in their family something that's going to prepare you know brian for a future of economic justice economic freedom economic success you know whenever i think about what we need to be doing for our children during this black history month of educating on you know rosa parks and mlk and all the other greats and stuff like that we have to figure out how to include this narrative of advancing our cultural heritage in there and i think a lot of that comes to do with the economic aspect of it because unfortunately the social justice aspect of it is slow it's tedious it's rigorous it's taxing because it takes policy it takes politicians it takes courtrooms a lot of different things that it, that it requires but this economic justice piece here patrice is showing us how to do it it's like get with your child and open a business get with your child and teach financial literacy get in your churches and do this get into your community centers your barber shops your your hair salons you know when you're in your, your man caves and you're, you're 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 watching football like as we are building ourselves to be better this is one of those areas that we can focus in on so yeah that's that's all i got i don't i'm not gonna you know there's plenty more we can talk about when it comes to this kind of stuff but you know these final messages like i said i just want to give you something that's gonna make you feel hopeful give you some positivity give you some drive some motivation inspiration you know that's what it's all about so hey my time is up i appreciate y'all coming and checking in with me listening to me whether you're doing your laundry maybe you're doing some some homework maybe you're just driving something i don't care i just appreciate you for checking in with me and taking a listen I do hope to catch you next time. I love delivering the news to you. Love making sure that, like I said, you get some some motivation, inspiration with your news. You get a holistic picture. I'm going to tell you my biases, but I'm also going to tell you some facts and try to give you the truth in it all. So appreciate your coming, sticking in, listening. All right, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Make sure you join us for the next show. We'll catch you next time.